Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. With Tamson and Dan read the paper on uh, January 27th, 2019. What have we got today, Dan? <laughs> oh, we saw a movie and a play, and, and also there's a lot of sports to talk about, including the Super Bowl. So if you hang until the very end, I will tell you who's going to win the Super Bowl and why. But uh, until then, birthdays this week, Tamsin? Yes, it's a big birthday week in my family. Happy birthday, Sister Sarah. Happy birthday, Brother Steed. Very good. We're moving right along here. Last Last night. Last night, we saw Cold War. Yes. Cold War, the the film directed by Pavel Pawlikowski, a Polish film, which is nominated for uh, Best Foreign Language Film in the Academy Awards. And uh, Pawlikowski is an interesting guy. He made a film called Ida, which in 2015 won the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film. Uh, So what do you think of Cold War? I thought it was good. By the way, we should just note that this movie has already won what they call the European Oscars. Mm -hmm. The European Film Awards. Yeah. No, listen, I I thought uh, you could convince me it's the best film I've seen this year, which is saying less than it normally means because there haven't been too many great films this year. So it's a black and white film. Yes. It's beautiful. Right. Okay. And uh, it's a bleak story, honestly, right? It is a bleak story. And that's part of the reason for the black and white. Yeah, really? Uh, Yeah. I read an interview with the director. Yeah. And uh, with someone who was noting that Ida was also black and white. Yeah. But it was a different kind of Another bleak story. (laughs) It was a a bleak story. It was kind of a bleak time. Uh, but it was a much softer yeah. uh, kind of imagery. Mm-hmm. And this is very crisp, very clear, uh, deals a lot in high contrast. And uh, he felt it was a, you know, sharply contrasting as well as bleak time in uh, European history. Right. It takes place post-World War II. 1949, it begins in Poland. And it drags on, drags on. Well, that's their lives are very up and down, mostly down, over six or seven years following that in Poland, in Paris, uh, in various European venues. And it's uh, very soulful. It's very affecting. Uh, it's not uplifting or upbeat, uh, but it's moving. Yes. It, we should say it's romantic. Yeah, it is. It's it about is. Uh, a love between two people mm-hmm. and uh, the ups and downs of it. Yeah. And uh, in relationship to what's happening politically and it, right. uh, in their country and around them and how that affects right. their lives. and uh, But it's about their personal... It's an obsessive, uh, difficult love affair cast right. against that background. Based on... He says... His parents. Which is crazy. Relationship. How you can say this is based on my parents, I don't know. But we can't, we, I can't said, give away too much of the story. Not on particular details, well, all right. but the general structure of it. And he said he condensed the story. In the movie, it takes place over 15 years. And uh, he didn't want to go through the whole thing of having actors age or having two different actors or whatever. Um, But in his parents' life, it was over 40 years. They were divorced. They were remarried. They married other people. They, you know, were in and out of various countries. Well, it's it's very thick because also, again, without giving anything of the story away, uh, the director, Pawlikowski, is a guy who was born in Poland but was really reared in the UK because he was taken out of Poland, and he ends up living today in Poland again. That's a little bit of a hint. Uh, so, listen, I think it's definitely worth seeing. Um, and another fascinating thing to me about this, he's nominated for Best Director at the Academy Awards. I'm not saying Best Director Foreign Film. Best Director. 
That never happens. That never happens. You're saying for a foreign film. For a foreign film director is nominated for Best Director. There are very few spots for that. And this year, it's a remarkable situation. You have Spike Lee. Uh, you have, uh, you know, for Black Klansman. You have Adam McKay uh, for Vice. And then you have three foreign directors. You've got Yorgos Alanthimos for The Favorite. And that, that's English-speaking, but it's an English movie. You have Alfonso Cuaron for Roma that everybody's talking about, which did get nominated for Best Picture as well as Best Foreign Language Picture. And then you have this movie, Cold War, nominated for Best Foreign Language Picture, and Paul Lukowski nominated for Best Director. It's well, that's interesting because we were also we also read an article that uh, the top new theater directors are all are foreign all born, non-American. Right, right. So uh, very interesting that uh, the world is getting smaller. Smaller or uh, the U.S. is being pushed out of it. It's one of those two things. Another remarkable thing about this movie? Yeah. The music. Yeah, well, we should say that the music. he's a, he's, he's a musician and uh, the female the main lead, character. The main character. Yeah. Played by Thomas Cott, if we had given right. that name. Right, and uh, his love interest is uh, jo- Joanna Kulig. Right, and she's they're both excellent, and, and she plays a singer. So yes. there's a lot of excellent music in it. And so, the music is, uh, it's based on Central European folk tunes, largely. And they kind of wind their way mm-hmm. through the story, through the plot, right. um, you know, in a very interesting way. And at the, you know, at one point, the main character is in Paris and he's playing in jazz clubs. Yeah. And so we actually have jazz versions yeah. of some of these Polish uh, Which folk is, tunes, it all works. You know, it, the, the thing is, I'll just say one final thing about this. A movie like this is a serious movie, um, but we recommend it for sure. It takes you out of your life. It takes you out of, you know, whatever your normal day-to-day concerns are. It just lifts you. It brings you to a different place. It's a hard place. It's a difficult place. It's really serious problems, but you benefit from that, I think. And uh, it's a, that kind of transcendent experience in the, in the movie theater, and that's hard to come by. Again, I think it this is year, more accessible... Yeah. Then uh, some foreign films. You remember the old commercial, Why Are Foreign Films So Foreign? No, I don't uh, remember. <laughs> yeah. But um, it is, I think, more accessible. And even the director was surprised by that. To get it. Well, it... Uh, for Europeans, it's very much tracing a, a historical sort of uh, part of their lives. Yeah. Uh, all these political changes and uh, in and out of countries and et cetera. Uh, countries morphing into different uh, shapes and uh, politics. But uh, the other good thing about this movie, yeah, it's short. Well, you know something? I was just going to say it's an hour and a half, but it feels like 20 minutes. Uh, so there you go. All right. So uh, we recommend... Cold War. Cold War. Um, and we saw a play. We saw a Dance of Death. Now, Dance of Death is not the most welcoming, happy title in the world. But it's the title of a play written in 1900 by August Strindberg. Strindberg. Okay, so there you got me. <laughs> a, Dance of Death. B, Strindberg. I'm out, baby. Okay, so wait, out because you know Strindberg? How did you get me to go to that? Well, first of all, let's be clear who Strindberg is. There were three leading uh, dramatists around 1900. There were August Strindberg, Henry Ibsen, and Anton Chekhov. You've heard of Ibsen. You've heard of Chekhov. Strindberg was the equal of those two, certainly reputation at that time. So it's pretty serious business. It is a production by Classic Stage Company. You know we have an affiliation with Classic Stage. And Classic Stage's mission is uh, to put on serious works. 
Uh, oh yeah, to and, challenge you a little bit, and that that's challenge a, the viewer, all right. challenge the performers, challenge the directors, exactly. Et cetera, which yeah. is an important perspective to have because when you come and you sit down in the theater, which is a very nice small theater, you're going to be brought into this, but you have the sense of you have to lend yourself to it. You're going to have to really invest in this in a way because it's not going to be, as you put it, as accessible as something else might be. So, with that as the perspective one brings to this, uh, what do you think of it? I did not think it was, was as bad. <laughs> as, I, as I was afraid it, it was would better be. than you thought it would yes, be it was, it was it was better yeah it was um again it, i mean it's tough subject matter right it's uh it's, it's a married couple um you know uh dancing around their relationship bickering really bickering, bickering like crazy yeah bickering uh, telling you. tall tales uh goading each yeah. other right um it's so you know um but i thought it was well performed. It's a, an adaptation, yeah. a fairly recent adaptation by Connor McPherson, who and, wrote who wrote The Weir. He's a serious playwright. Okay, um, when I say serious, an excellent playwright. Okay, an excellent playwright. Yeah. And uh, so it, you know, on many levels, it worked in ways I didn't expect it to work. It was at times humorous, uh, just as sometimes it was horrifying. Yeah. Uh, so I mean, that, a lot like life, I guess. And veered occasionally into the absurd. Um, but uh, I think, again, sometimes uh, artists are trying to capture mm-hmm. the reality of life by yeah. um, presenting it, presenting the absurd. Yeah. Uh, well, so. I, look, I agree with all that. Uh, let me say this, first of all, about the play and about Strindberg. Strindberg is, in some people's view, was a misogynist. He had a difficult personal life. He was married and divorced three times. He had a tough time dealing with women, supposedly. Uh, also, the woman in this uh, play, which is, can I say, shrew-like uh, or difficult? The man's difficult, Allegedly too. a depiction of his first wife. Exactly, my point, yes. Uh, and I, I love sh- how you're couching all this uh, supposedly misogynist, etc. Ah, uh, you know me. I I'm open-minded. pretty well-documented. Yeah, all right. Okay. I mean, uh, you don't have to love every playwright, do you? Oh, that's a whole question right now. But um, it, you know, it, it, look. It's sometimes it's the honeymooners, and sometimes it's two steps beyond. And you're going like, oh, okay. uh, I should mention the. It was directed by Victoria Clark, who's the great musical performer, uh, who was the light in the piazza, uh, and many others, and many others, and things yeah. that we've seen in encores. Yeah. Um, and uh, how did such a nice lady ever? <laughs> <laughs> and it stars uh, Cassie Beck as Alice, uh, Richard Topol as uh, Edgar, and Christopher Invar as Kurt. All three, you know, here's something that we haven't discussed, and I've thought about it. I'm not sure I love the female lead, and I'll tell you why. There's nothing she did that was bad, okay? But this play gets performed a lot. This is not something they pulled out from deep into the closet. No one wants to touch it. Yeah. It gets performed. There's even a movie that was done in 1969 with Laurence Olivier in it, right? But uh, there's a production I noted a few years ago with Helen Mirren in it, okay? Mm-hmm. If Helen Mirren's in this play, it's a whole different play. Now, there only, there's only one Helen Mirren. I get that. But the notion of the moving from the difficulty to the playfulness, uh, you know, the in and out of the relationship. The nature. Yeah. Uh, I think I, you see the potential to have that uh, enhanced. Uh, so I wonder about that. Did you want her to be more likable? No, I wanted her to be, uh, I thought she, you could see the wheels turning in her case. And I wanted her to be more fluid more instinctual 
Uh, I don't know. Right. I, but it's not so much a good criticism of her. I want Helen Mirren in the part. That's what I want. <laughs> Where is Helen Mirren uh, when you need her? So in any event, so that is Dance of Death at uh, Classic Stage. So it's something you might want to check into. I think it's probably, I, well, I think it is worth your time. Um, all right, so we move on to the world at large. And uh, one quick uh, investment in the commercial world at large. Uh, maybe two. Uh, one story that jumped out at me was from the journal, the world's biggest brands want you to refill your orange juice and deodorant. And the, uh, folks like Procter & Gamble and Nestle and others are now going to try selling things like Tropicana orange juice in refillable containers. In the case of Tropicana, it's going to be glass bottles. In the case of Tide, it's going to be metal cans. And the question is whether consumers are going to cotton to that either by virtue of a delivery service, which is going to pick up your metal container or your glass bottle and refill it for you, or whether you're going to go glass bottle, your metal container, and fill things up on a regular basis as opposed to the way things are normally done. And that's the question, Tamsin. What do you think? You know, I've been trying to refill my own coffee cup for years. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, uh, for a while, various uh, places have... Whole Foods, etc., had this thing where you could just pay for the coffee, yeah. not for the cup. And it wasn't even about money for me. It yeah. was about the environment. Mm-hmm. And uh, you get into all this stuff about, oh, no, we can't do that. It would be unsanitary, etc. Well, let's so, say they changed. You know, let's say they changed. If it works, fine. How, let me give if, you this idea. If it can possibly work. But what if we, we don't have to do this? Somebody, what if somebody opened a store? All they did was refillables. They had a range of refillables. They had beer. They had they had uh, they had coffee grounds. They That's had, another thing, the growler thing. You yeah, know? Okay, but you the could, growler thing didn't quite catch no, on. In some places, it did. But just think for a moment. Just think big. What if you said a store that was just a refillable store? That's all you did. And I think had... that would be a huge freaking store, <laughs> right? How about all right? But... There's a difference between having some cans on a shelf yeah. in the brand right? that you like and having the you know. But we were the in, refillable. We were in Italy. They had refillable olive oil. Yeah, and it was huge. It I understand. Was huge. Okay, it was like a gas station. The, yeah, you were in a gas station with these okay. huge vats. These are big that ideas. Had spigots. This is the okay. future. I'm get- you would have to kind of convince people right. that. Uh, I'll, I'll have to talk you into this. I wouldn't, you know, I would do it, but how's that going to happen? What How are mean? you going to get uh, the average Joe to load up their car with the laundry detergent container? And the olive oil container and the milk bottle and truck that all well, into maybe. the store. You know, they say in this article that in the mid-40s, and it was a different time technologically, that everyone bought their beer and soda that way. They did not have individual cans and bottles right, of beer and soda. But you're talking about many more products than that. Okay. I, look, okay. food I mean, for thought. I, I embrace it. Uh, but but the, as I say, in the small areas I've tried to do that, uh, the other way to do it is that these things it, have not worked. There's the, a milkman model too, where people come by your house. They talk about this and here. take back and take back the bottles. take take back the caners and yeah right. and refill it. Right, you could do that. Okay, well, all right. you know, all we'll right. see. You've got thirty laundry on your mind. Go ahead. No, I don't. I have coffee on my mind. Well, okay, you have this. very disappointing that uh, you cannot just walk into various stores yes, and just I, fill your drink. But I cup. meant the dirty laundry article here. This is this guy. Okay, yeah. Hans Jurgen Topf, yeah. Der Topf, this guy. as he likes to call as himself, he's known, yeah. is the laundry guy to the stars. 
and he works out of Germany. Yeah. Okay. You're perking up. And this, yeah. uh, well, it's just it's just kind of you know another situation where somebody filled a niche. It's another way right? to deliver a service. That's he was all. born yeah. in 1956. Yeah. All right. He has a bad. He's back a kid. Now. He's a kid. He he goes around. He supplies laundry service to. Musical acts, right? Okay. okay, including like for instance, the the first one they cite is U two. Okay, yeah. so there's a truck with his laundry, his washing machines yeah. that goes with U two. Right. The headline of the article: All over He does Madonna's laundry. Venues. The man does Madonna's laundry. Okay, these tours, yeah. um, which can the U two tour, for example, lasted seven months, spanned two continents. And had 150 people as the entourage. No, okay, all who need clean clothes. Oh, mm, okay, mm. so instead of having everybody run out, somebody run out to a laundromat yeah. uh, whenever they're in, uh, you know, a particular town and do all the laundry, yeah. he brings the laundromat to them. Okay, so he was born in 1956. A family of East German refugees. Yeah. Okay, we're back to East Germany again. Right. And uh, his father actually was a smuggler mm-hmm. and would help get people out of East Germany, okay, right. um, in, I don't know, potato trucks or something. And uh, he was eventually caught, and then his family managed to uh, escape to West Germany, where they started a laundry business. And... Uh, their top is still located there today. All right. Um, he doesn't go out on tour too much anymore because he has a bad back. Don't we all? <laughs> but uh, this just started, you know, many years ago in the 80s. Uh, a truck on the way to some performance asked him for directions. Yeah. Uh, he, meanwhile, was making like a delivery for his family's laundry business. And uh, one thing led to another. He starts hanging out at musical venues saying, hey, do you need, me to, need someone to do your laundry? And so he has, it boggles my mind that he has this truck of washing machines yeah. and he just hooks them up wherever he, ever he can. Yeah. You know, he knows all the defunct, um, he says, disabled bathrooms in every German right. football stadium. Right, right. it's the okay. bathrooms. Yeah, all and you need is a bathroom. he makes them work. Uh, if necessary, he, uh, you know, will air dry the performer's costumes, mm-hmm. like a, a handheld fan or mm-hmm. something. Um, he's made mistakes. He ruined a pair of Joe Cocker's pants. He ruined a vest of Janet Jackson's once. He shrank a golden pair of pants belonging to David Hasselhoff. Mm. Well, okay. that's probably all but, to the good. But uh, <laughs> mainly, he does a very good job. Uh, so this is it's a uh, lot of you know, territory. From okay, he Joe had, Cocker, you know, David Hasselhoff. He has trucks all over Europe, and now he's also expanding to the U.S. as well. So that's kind of interesting. Yes. All right. Well, it's uh, yeah. That had, I missed that article. I was focused on the Hall of Fame uh, this week because there was all this all this stuff about who got in. We don't have to dwell on that. We all know who got in, but. But there was an article in the Times which was uh, right, which was right on top of things. Bill James should be in the Hall of Fame. Bill James, the original statistician of the stars, the original sabermetrics guy, the guy who looked at baseball statistics in a different way. But I feel like, is that um, historic? 
Yes, it's changed the game fundamentally. Although I should say, perhaps this is your concern. Are there non-players in the Hall of Fame? There are. Okay. There are usually owners and commissioners, people who did nothing for the game. Okay, but this guy really did something. Yes, he changed the game. Whether you think it's better or not, I don't know. But uh, he changed the game. So you have all this positioning, all the shifting, uh, all the changes in lineups. Such. He proved a lot of things that weren't obvious. He proved that uh, uh, basically bunting, sacrifice bunting, which you might be familiar with, is, is counterproductive that you don't want to do it, that it, it, it results in fewer runs. He proved that uh, what matters more often than hitting home runs in power is getting on base. But it's not just because he wrote a book and uh, said all these things. No, he, these statistically, he proved things it. things have come into practice. Well, these realizations no, 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 have come into no, practice? No. no, no, you skipped a step. Okay, number one is he demonstrated it's the case, and number two is people have adopted it, yes. Right. Both those things So it's happened. made a real impact. Yeah. He, all right. And he worked. As a matter of fact, he works. So for, every, and has he had his name put up? Uh, no, no, no. But but that's because that's where we come in. Because now you know we'll build a groundswell, put his name okay. up. Okay. I mean, he's working now. He, he started as a guy who was basically uh, would sit outside, uh, you know, old plants. He was a security guy, and he had nothing to do. He would write things like his articles about baseball statistics, and he was interested in true crime. He wrote an interesting book about that. But he just did this as a hobby. Now he works for the Red Sox. Mm-hmm. And people use his statistical methodology all over the place. And now many more people with much more advanced degrees than he had are using quantitative methods that weren't available to him to go even beyond that. Uh, but it all started with him. Okay, so we're looking for, in the Hall of Fame, that uh, big case with sabermetrics. <laughs> Listen, I'll just, this, go, this goes back to pictures Steve Klugman, who you know, yeah. used to come into my office 100 years ago. And said, I just bought Bill James' preview book for the baseball season. Here's what's going to happen that you have no idea. And I'd say, who's Bill James? And he would go on and on and on. And sometimes he was even right. So, look, he's an original thinker for an old game. Uh, And he's changed it. So there you go. That's my guy, Bill James. Uh, So you were going to talk about, oh, something to do with art. Something about a hidden painting or something like that. Yeah, right. yeah, art and retail, oh, actually. Good. Um, but a lot of funny things. Well, first of all, there, um, the powers that be at Oscar de la Renta yeah. were uh, getting ready to have a new store uh, in Paris. Yeah. And they had uh, found a place uh, to uh, put that Oscar de la Renta store, boutique, whatever you want to call it. And uh, in fact, uh, you know, they had had their eye on this space for a while and it wasn't quite big enough. Then the second floor became available. Then renovations started and lo and behold, in the process of renovating a very, you know, unexciting looking space, they um, found, the construction workers found a fantastic ceiling a uh, coffered, wood-paneled, coffered means little squares, uh, paneled ceiling painted with uh, heraldic um, symbols, etc. And then as they continued, they found behind some drywall uh, a kind of an amazing uh, 17th century painting. Um, So this is all kind of fun. And this has been, you know, 
uh, in the newspaper, on the TV shows, etc. Um, it ends up being an oil camp. One thing leads, leads to another, and they get in an expert from the Louvre, and they find out this is an oil on canvas created in 1674 by an artist named Devouet, who actually worked with a very famous uh, painter from the period, Charles Le Brun, the big guy for Louis XIV, mm -hmm. um, who did a lot of work on Versailles, etc. Um, and so they trace down, you know, what is the painting, what it may be, etc. So it's all very exciting that uh, you're doing this very run-of-the-mill renovation in a retail space, and kaboom, mm -hmm. there's this secret hidden painting uh, behind it. Um, and so hopefully much more will come of that. But it made me think about other hidden paintings, yeah. of course. Good. All right. Um, there are some super famous ones, including Leonardo's painting of uh, the Battle of Angieri, who, which was, uh, I think I might have talked about this before. It's in the Palazzo Vecchio, allegedly. Originally, there were two walls, one painted by... Leonardo, one painted by Michelangelo. Although the Michelangelo probably was never finished, but the Leonardo was, we think, and then it disappeared. Okay, there's a renovation of the space by none other than Giorgio Vasari, and the painting, the Leonardo, disappears. Yeah. So there is a um, professor in Italy who feels certain that the Leonardo is behind the new painting by Vasari. Yeah, so what and then do do? all we have to do is destroy the Vasari <laughs> and <laughs> to get to the Leonardo. Are they going to do that? So he drilled a couple of little holes, and, uh, you know, there is, they've analyzed uh, the pigment on the back, uh, and they feel confident, but... Nobody in Italy, you know, it's very controversial in Italy, and all those explorations have come to a blinding halt. Mm. So for right now, we don't know if there's an enormous oh, okay. Leonardo hidden behind all this right. wall. So we're all waiting to find out. Um, there was also a rumor, here, but here's the deal. You know why I don't think there's a Leonardo behind there? No, I don't know why. Because Vasari, Vasari, you know, famously wrote the biographies uh, we know, uh, yes, of the artists know, right. in the period. Okay. So, but he did other renovations and other paintings around uh, town, yeah. including at, um, including the famous uh, Masaccio Trinity, okay, in Santa Maria della Grazia. And, no, Santa Maria Novella, uh, uh, over by the train station. Uh, you've been there. Anyway, very famous painting. Um, Vasari was called upon to do renovations of that chapel. Yeah. I know you're dozing off. No, God. Vasari, when he does it, is very careful to preserve the Masaccio behind it. And it is easily um, accessed mm -hmm. uh, later on. Uh, when people are, realize that it would be much better to be able to see the Masaccio than the Vasari. I think if he is doing in a similar situation in Le, you know, with a Leonardo, he would have, I like to think he would have uh, um, done something similar. He would not have 
hidden it. Uh, it okay, I get you your know, point. So I your I, point. you know, so I'm doubtful it uh, still is accessible or exists. I think we'd know if that was the case. Anyway, uh, moving right along, there's also a hidden work of art in Southampton, Long Island. Okay, at the Parish Museum. Mm-hmm. All right, the Parish Museum was founded by a fellow named Samuel Longstreth. Parish years ago and uh, was kind of it was uh, where he uh, displayed his collection it grew and grew and grew and since left okay mm-hmm. now it's the Sa- Southampton Art Center or something mm-hmm. it was deeded to the town behind some drywall there mm-hmm. is our sub is a kind of uh, um, sort of composite altarpiece made of plaster casts purchased by Parrish back in the day. In the 19th, 20th century, early 20th, late 19th century, American art collectors were collecting a lot of plaster casts of great art, um, not, a, not a, being able to afford a Donatello, but you could uh, get a cast of a Donatello. And behind this drywall yeah. are the plaster casts. Now, recently, somebody wanted to put a hole in the drywall, which is just stupid drywall, mm-hmm. and have kind of an exhibition where you could look back there and see his old stuff, which is no longer considered a value or interest because it's not real sculpture. It's just plaster casts. The town wouldn't allow it. Right. No, it's not all right. Okay, how silly is that? All right. So, the, so people cannot see this, um, and they could have had a chance, and you could easily cover it up again. But anyway, so that's some of the art hidden behind walls stories that have fascinated me, and. Uh, I can see they're not fascinating. <laughs> well, I, moving right along. No, see, here's what I would have expected. All right, I would expected that you would say here's six or seven situations. I mean, it must happen a lot. It must happen a lot. Quite apart from you know the detailed uh, histories that you just gave us, are there not like a, a bunch of examples of this? It still boggles the mind, doesn't it, that uh, we are down on our knees before any Leonardo, yeah. right, and yet. Uh, you know, in the same century after he lived, uh, people were painting over it. People were saying, well, no, but the, the, that's old fashioned. Yeah, no, but, but that's the thing that gets bye me. Bye bye, Leonardo. Yeah, yeah I don't know, know what the, the details, I don't, I don't know enough about art. So or, or it gets very complicated yeah. to try to, you know, resurrect this right. stuff. Yeah. But it's just, uh, I don't know, it's interesting to think about uh, what is art. What is but great it, art? And also, to, to me, it's interesting that people ever paint over anything, honestly. Why would you paint over anything? There's so many blank canvases to use. I don't get it. Or blank walls, even. So it's hard for me to fathom. There was also a great story that um, when Pope Julius asked Raphael yeah. to paint uh, in uh, his rooms, the Sala della Signatura, that there that somebody had already started a painting, and Raphael just breaks it right up. And um, and then, but actually, Raphael was such a lovable guy yeah. um, that he actually does a little tribute to that artist in another well, room. Yeah. But uh, again, that was a story spread by your friend and mine, Vasari. Yeah. Right. And we think it's not true. 
All right, let's. All right, let me go. But going back to sports, going back to sports. Uh, this is the 50th anniversary of the Mets winning the World Series in 1969. 1969. Yeah. The amazing Mets, yes, amazing well, Mets, yes. whatever it was called. Right. Yes. Okay. Okay. So, so we'll probably talk more about this as the year goes on. And that what 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 people get excited about there is the team was a last place team. They went from zero to hero. It's called for worst to first is the okay. exact phrase. But you have two examples that's going on right now in New York, and people are sort of onto it and not onto it. One is the Brooklyn Nets. People are starting to catch up with the Brooklyn Nets. The Brooklyn Nets, the last place team for several years because of disastrous trades, and uh, they're in Brooklyn in that uh, wonderful Barclays Arena, but awful. And now, suddenly, uh, as they say in the journal, remember the Nets, they're good now. They're winning like crazy. Are they really? Because it seems like to me that we hear that story every few years. Okay, let me give this to you. They've yeah. won 10 out of their last 11 at home. They've won 18 of the last 23 games overall. They're now three games over 500. they They're now positioned to be in the playoffs in the coming year. Okay. They have arrived. All right. All right? So your endorsement is usually the kiss of death. Not, it's not an endorsement. I've been waiting for the Nets to get good. Sean Marks, a general manager. Kenny Atkinson being the coach. He's brought in a bunch of players. They're all, none of them are superstars. They're all B pluses or Bs, but they play well together and they're an extremely deep team. They just suffered another injury. Spencer Dinwiddie went out, but they'll be okay because they have many, many players. So that's a great story. They're far superior to the Knicks who get much more publicity. But here's something that even I wasn't on to, and that's the New York Islanders. The New York Islanders, also a last place team, lost their best player in the offseason to the Toronto Maple Leafs by free agent, destined to go nowhere. I did mention, I think, at the beginning of the season that they hired Lou Lamarillo, ex of the Devils, who's a brilliant general manager. And believe it or not, in just a few weeks and a few months, they are leading their division. Uh, they brought in a guy named Barry Trotz, who was the coach of the Washington Capitals team that won the Stanley Cup last year, but they couldn't come to a satisfactory salary arrangement in the future, so he was available. They have a top coach, but the strangest thing of their amazing story is they have a goalie named Robin Lehner, who 10 months ago was drinking a case of beer a day and taking pills to go to sleep. He was uh, thinking about suicide. He had a panic attack in a game. He was out of the league. He was in the substance abuse program 10 months ago. Now he's playing for the Islanders. He's 11-1 in his last 12 games, and he is leading the team in first place. So how much beer is he drinking now? None, he says. Okay. None. And he, it turns out he has a, a host of psychological problems that uh, I can't even go into here. It's one thing after another, and so it's even more complicated than substance abuse. Uh, he has all these difficulties, but they have them under control. He's with the team that he says is extremely supportive. They all live together in the East Meadow area of Long Island, and it's an environment that allows him to thrive. So nobody follows the Islanders. They don't have a home. You know, they're looking for a home. I think you know that. Yeah. The Nassau Coliseum has to be replaced. They're out of Brooklyn. They don't know where they're going. But they're a first-place team. So you have these two New York stories Maybe they'll be just like the Mets. Who knows? I think the Nets need a couple more years. Probably so do the Islanders. But they're on the way up. All right. Hacha. Glad to hear hockey uh, team, you know, coming around. There it is. All right. All right. Um, That's a team I grew up with, the Islanders. Right. But you say they gave away their best player to the Maple Leafs? They didn't say. They lost them to free agent. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. John uh, Tortorella. All right. Museum update quickly because I've already uh, glazed over your eyeballs with uh, so much art. 
But here's the deal. Yes. There's an exhibition opening at the Stockholm National Museum, okay, about the Danish Golden Age, referring to uh, the first half of the 19th century. All right, so usually we think of um, Kierkegaard, Hans Christian Andersen, uh, and others, but not painters so much in Denmark, etc. And uh, so this is going to be kind of a landmark exhibition mm-hmm. uh, demonstrating uh, Danish painting during this period that uh, is resplendent with Nordic light, small, intimate, limpid works that seem to cross-pollinate Impressionism with photography. So I feel like this is going to run from February 28th to July 21st in Stockholm. Then it's going to Denmark, the National Gallery of Denmark. Then it's going to Paris. And uh, you get the sense from the article in the Wall Street Journal that this is going to kind of wake people up to this uh, Danish painting and some of these uh, Danish painters uh, in a new way. And uh, so they mention various artists such as Eckersberg, uh, Kobke, and others. And uh, it looks like uh, a rather interesting collection of both landscapes, portraits, to some extent, uh, informed by uh, Italian works of art and the exposure of these artists to Italy, but also the rest of Europe. So look out for that. One interesting painting that I should just quickly mention is a um, portrait of King Frederick VI uh, by Eckersberg. And, you know, mostly it says, uh, the article points out that this king is usually presented as very imperious, uh, medieval, enormous looking. And Eckersberg somehow manages uh, to make him look like an everyday guy in an extraordinary outfit. Um, kind of a little bit of a political statement there, showing him as uh, a king of who's a man of the people. Well, that's good. So watch out for Danish painting, maybe the next craze, 19th century Danish painting. All right, good. Uh, yeah, as long as they don't paint over the stuff, they'll, they'll probably so be okay. You, go. you want to go to Stockholm? Uh, you've got a list of places to go to see paintings. We'll have to go over it. There's a lot of licorice there, too. Yeah, yeah. all right. So um, I should correct myself, by the way. I said John Tortorella a moment ago. It's another player. John Tavares is the extremely good hockey player, all-star hockey player of the Islanders. It was signed by the Maple Leafs, helping the Maple Leafs, but the Islanders are still doing well. So, the Super Bowl, you want to know, a week from or today. Or the big game. I'll call the Super as Bowl. We... I'll, you know, it's okay. All right. It's all right. I know there's a trademark issue there, but I ignore it. So here we go. The uh, Rams against the Patriots. And already, I think most people are picking the Patriots. Uh, although, there, you know, it's, it's, there's support for both sides. Here's the deal with the game. It breaks down very simply. Uh, and I don't know why more people aren't on to this. The best offensive player coming into the season for the Los Angeles Rams has been missing in action. Uh, he is not the quarterback. He is not Jared Goff. He's a fellow named Todd Gurley. He's the running back. Mm-hmm. Todd Gurley was the AFC... I think perhaps the NFL Offensive Player of the Year last year. Mm-hmm. Not the best player in the Rams, the best player in the league. Okay. All right? He, uh, late in the season, uh, got a, uh, suffered a knee injury. Right. And the, the, the tradition of the NFL 
is you don't give details about injuries, which is going to change because once gambling takes over the NFL, which it will, no one's going to stand for that. But in the meantime, they're like a mom and pop shop and they keep secrets. So no one tells you how hurt Gurley is. They play the last week's game against the uh, Saints, which is a very good game and very close, and Saints probably should have won. There's a bad call. You remember that. Right. But the fact of the matter is Gurley barely played. All right. They played a different running back who's a nice enough fella, uh, C.J. Anderson, and is somewhat effective, but he's been released by three teams. That's a different kind of player. All right? So you think Gurley doesn't play? play? I, I didn't, hold on. Let me finish. All right? Okay. So Gurley... They keep saying, why didn't Gurley play? He played a few series. Why didn't Gurley play? And they're saying even now, he's not hurt. He's not hurt. We just went with a hot hand. We went, Gurley says, I have no trouble. You know, whatever. Nonsense. He's hurt. He's been hurt. And they won't talk about it. He's two weeks off now. All I'm saying is, if they line up in this game and he's playing, they win. They've been winning without him. And he's he is their key offensive player. If he plays, they win. If he, uh, now you lost me. Why? Because it makes us. You make it sound like you think he is hurt and he's not going to no, play. No, no, no. I think he's. I think he's hurt, but he could be healed in two weeks. With he, a knee injury? Yeah. Seriously? Well, if, yeah. Well, he'll be better in two weeks. I don't know. Look, I have no insight into how hurt he is. Okay, the person in your own family, okay. Nico, just yeah. had a knee injury. Yeah, these guys get they shot up with drugs heal. that weren't available to Nico. All right, all right. My point is, my point is, it's it's all that. I don't know what's going to come out about this. They keep insisting he's not hurt. If he is not hurt and he plays the game, the Rams will win the game. And you really think? And the Rams' defense is it's, up to the wily old codger. Yes. The Rams are a better team than the Eagles were last year, and the Eagles beat the uh, Patriots. The Patriots can be beaten. And tell you what, the Patriots would have lost to the Chiefs. They have the same issue the Rams have. They have a, he had a great running back. His name was Kareem Hunt. He was videoed in Week 10 beating up a woman in, in, outside an elevator, and they cut him just like that, and his name has not been mentioned in an NFL broadcast since. If I'm not saying that shouldn't have happened, but... If Kareem Hunt was playing for the for the Chiefs, they would have beaten the Patriots. Okay. If Todd Gurley's playing for the Rams, they will beat the Patriots. And okay. if not, it, it's a toss-up slight edge to, to the uh, Patriots. All right. Well, Daniel, I'm glad to hear that. Of course, your record speaks for itself. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. Yes, it does. And then we'll but leave it at that. We'll you know more at... about this than I do. All right. That's for sure. All right. So we'll look forward to that next week. Uh, yeah. Meanwhile, this is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Apuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan reading the paper. Thanks a lot.